Mona Lisa. Probably the most famous painting in the world, and definitely one of Leonardo da Vinci's signature works. The smile that drove art lovers and spectators wild with possibility. What's not to love? Well, that's what I was telling myself as my family and I made our way through the Louvre, dodging through doorways and taking made-up shortcuts to get ahead of the crowd, pushing toward one goal. It was almost too obvious where the Mona Lisa was kept. We didn't need any directions besides that of the herd, and as we shuffled past other branches of the museum, my mind kept drifting off and thinking about some of the other sculptures and paintings I was blowing by. Of course, none of them were even remotely as famous as the Mona Lisa, but I still felt a little twinge of guilt since I was rushing past them. I could almost hear their sighs in my head, watching the throngs thrust their way through the historic exhibits to reach that bucket list goal, ignoring the rich history in the humble hallways around them. What a depressing existence. But soon enough, I found myself by La Gioconda, the self-amused one, herself. Or at least, I thought I did. To be honest, I couldn't really tell what painting was on the wall. A mob ten people deep had formed in a tight semicircle, prevented from reaching the painting by a cordoning velvet rope and a thick plate of glass. Together, we jostled for the chance to face the jovial muse, waiting for the dancing darkness in her eyes to enrich ours. As I stepped closer for my turn in the front, I couldn't help but check out the rest of the gallery and Wow. To the right of the Mona Lisa, which graces a tiny canvas no more than two and a half feet long, was a gargantuan painting entitled The Wedding Feast at Cana. It wasn't just a couple times as large, it literally took up a whole wall, with plenty of characters and dynamic movements unveiling the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And in front of that painting was one elderly couple, the only other people in the room besides us Mona Lisa mobsters, engrossed in the sheer scale of the artwork, able to pour over the details two inches from the canvas for as much time as their eyes wanted to digest. In contrast, my feeble attempts to snap a magnified photo of the minuscule Mona Lisa were superficial at best. There was no legitimate chance to appreciate the details of Leonardo's sfumata technique, which blends shadows and light to bring his subject's face to life. There was only time for a warlike stab at visitation, a point-and-click maneuver in which timing was of the utmost importance. Too short, and the memory was a blur. Yet too long, and the memory would end rather unfavorably, with an irritable shove in the back from those hungry tourists behind you. One of the most moving paintings in the history of art had been relegated to the suffering of celebrity, and over the shutter clicks and the soft oohs and ahs of feigned appreciation, I thought I heard Lisa herself heave the greatest sigh of all. What went wrong? Why do we treat such an important painting as if it's a VIP guest, rather than one of the most instructive and inspirational works of art to date? When did we decide to make it cliché, and how does that change our perception of art in the modern day? Well, settle in folks, today's a great day to mess with the madness. Welcome back to Plato. Thank you for tuning in to this episode on the philosophy of art. As I was coming up with the idea for this episode, I realized that most, if not all, of my episodes coincide with a particular book. For example, the first episode on problem-solving corresponded to my rereading of The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton M. Christensen. The second episode on democracy was related to several of Noam Chomsky's books, notably Understanding Power and Deterring Democracy, while the third episode about media relied primarily on his book Manufacturing Consent. With that in mind, and since reading is essential to how I maintain my own curiosity, I decided that I would drop a few book recommendations at the beginning of each episode that relate to the topic at hand. These aren't always going to be deep philosophical works. In fact, I'd rather have them be approachable books that aren't too daunting to get into. 
The inspiration for this episode is a pretty long but richly detailed biography entitled Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. This book introduced me to the nuances of Leonardo's work compared with other Renaissance artists, but more importantly, placed all of his achievements and ideas in the context of the society in which he lived, which requires a lot of historical imagination and guesswork. If you're looking to understand the hype behind Leonardo and why he's still one of history's enigmas, please give this book a read. Anyway, it's good to be back with you all, and I hope you've been reflecting about your own assumptions about the world, even while I've been powering through my writer's block. Back to our story. It turns out the wedding feast at Cana is the largest painting at the Louvre, probably one of the grandest paintings to hang in a museum. And despite its earth-shattering size and appeal to the grandeur of world records, and even though you can go up and almost touch your nose to it, it ends up playing second fiddle to the lady in the middle. So what is it about art that makes the Mona Lisa more powerful than the wedding feast at Cana? What are the merits by which we judge art? And most importantly, why do we distinguish art from the everyday world? I can't claim to have all the answers to this, and actually this episode isn't really going to be as concrete as they have been in the past. Art is one of the most subjective experiences known to man, so no philosophy of art can really claim to be generalizable to the whole human population. Art is also a really broad category of items. Although in this episode we'll mostly be dealing with visual arts, there are many facets of art, such as music, dance, and poetry, that we really won't be able to cover. But I don't want to cover all types of art. What I'm really trying to get at here is how we feel about art. Basically, I want you guys to finish this episode with an appreciation for your own ability to appreciate, and the strong urge to question what it is you see in art that makes you wonder. With that being said, let's jump into the linguistic background. Even though I've been using English etymologies over the past episodes, English is by no means the golden standard by which we should draw our linguistic conclusions. It's just one way to trace back to the original meanings of words to see if we can derive something of significance. As it turns out, the etymology of the English word art is ridiculously boring. It came from French and Italian roots, and it means skill or craft. It might be traced back further to the German word art of the same spelling, which today means kind, as in a kind of bird. So it's one of the most general words we could come up with for what these craftsmen were doing. They were making a kind of real, practical craft that they could sell as artisans. According to Giorgio Vasari, the 16th century art historian who documented much of the Renaissance, art is an imitation of the natural world, not necessarily a separate discipline in itself, but a way to optimize the beauty of nature for our own purposes. Well, that didn't really seem to capture the essence of what I felt art brought to the world, so I looked up the etymology of the original German word for art, which is Kunst. To my surprise, I found that it was directly related to the root word kennen, which means to know. In other words, art started as a specialized form of knowledge, a way to make a certain item or use a certain item to create an effect that would be appealing to others. This etymology of the word escapes the imitation game that Vasari claimed to be characteristic of art, though as we'll see, both definitions and etymologies have significant philosophical backing. What was the first artwork like? If you're as clueless about art as I was before making this episode, you're probably thinking along the lines of cave paintings and handprints on the walls made by early hominids some 30,000 years ago. And you're pretty close. Those caves are really old, and more importantly, they help pinpoint an interesting phenomenon in art that we observe in children, the use of the hand. 
I'm not talking about holding a paintbrush. I'm talking about those hand turkeys we used to make for Thanksgiving, or the handprint within a handprint you might have from when you were a baby and your parents wanted to flex on you later. The point is, even as kids, the first artistic inclination we have is to stamp our existence onto the reality around us. And a common method for doing that is exactly what you'd expect to see in those caves. Handprints and smeared drawings on the walls, an indication of human identity that, to this day, echoes true in our own psychologies. This concept of identity seems to imply a sense of hierarchy, and even language, as the authors of a paper in Frontiers in Psychology argued back in February 2018. They suggest that this cave art crosses modalities from auditory to visual. According to their analysis of the acoustics of the caves in which the art was found, places of high acoustic resonance featured paintings of hooved animals that would produce resonant percussive sounds in the cave, whereas quieter areas would have pictures of felines, dots, or human handprints. They also observed markings around resonant stalagmites and stalactites within the cave, which would produce musical tones when struck. Their interpretation of these findings is that cave art was a stepping stone in language. Specifically, they believe that this art was a translation from external indexes, which are signs that are directly related to the stimulus, such as hoofbeats or music, to intentionally chosen icons, which are our representations of those indexes, such as a drawing of a horse that might make the hoofbeat, or a higher ring around the stalactite which produces a higher tone. This may seem like a stretch, but according to the late Dennis Dutton, former professor of aesthetics at the University of Canterbury, as well as Daniel Everett, author of How Language Began, tools, language, and art are almost certainly inextricably linked. In his TED Talk in 2010, Dutton brings up the Acheulean tools discovered in the Olduvai Gorge in Africa. These tools were stones chipped into teardrop shapes, which could be used comfortably as hand axes. But these tools appear to have served more than just a practical use for our ancestors, the Homo erectus. There are far too many well-preserved tools, which look like they had never been used, to say that erectus made them for practical reasons. On the contrary, the simple symmetry of each of the samples, combined with the sheer number and proximity of the archaeological discoveries, suggests that these tools were among the earliest forms of art. Everett agrees, and goes even further. In our modern world, we can interpret a picture of a tool such as a mallet as an indication of construction, oppression, or law, not just the device itself. So too could Erectus have interpreted these stones as indicators of progress or perfection, or even, as Dutton suggests, some sort of sexual selection. Importantly, the evolution in language from index to icon is mirrored in the transition from tools to art. The key difference is intentionality. When hominids found sharp rocks to use to shape the world around them, those were simply acts of nature. But the intentional design of the teardrop hand axe demonstrates their improved cognition, recognizing the features of the tool that should be improved for optimal use, the earliest example of ergonomics. What's more impressive is the standardization we see in the archaeological records. It seems that our ancestors had an eye for symmetry and mathematical ratios in geometry, specifically in proportion to the hominid body, as these works of art were based off handheld tools. This universal understanding of and striving toward the optimal hand axe seems to indicate that they had a mental picture, some sort of precognition of the end goal. This brings us to the most famous cave in human history, located nowhere on earth. I'm talking about Plato's cave, the thought experiment that sought out the mind. Plato's cave has a lot of philosophical value, but for now, we'll stick to the basics. Imagine a human chained to the ground facing a cave wall. Behind him is a flame which casts distorted shadows against the wall whenever objects pass between the two. To that man, the shadows are reality. 
They're not like the indexes we talked about, even though they are technically physical signs connected to the objects they represent. The man doesn't know what those objects are, so to him, the shadows are the objects, nothing more. Except one day he's set free, and he wanders out of the cave into the sunlight and sees a bunch of, well, colors and trees and other stuff that makes no sense to him. He's forced to recognize that the distortions he saw were just pale imitations of these new things in front of him, and his whole reality has changed. Plato posits that this is the position of humans with respect to reality. His question is, how do we know what things are? For example, there are many different kinds of trees in all shapes, colors, sizes, smells, etc. How do I fit them all under that one category, tree? Plato thought there had to be some standard by which we all innately judge the world around us. And for him, this was his world of forms, a theoretical and inaccessible world of perfect things. In here, you might expect to find the one-size-fits-all description of a tree that lets us classify pines, poplars, and palmettos as one type of organism. To Plato, reality is just a pale imitation of this world of forms. It's distorted shadow in our reality, but that would make art a double deception, a shadow of a shadow, as it were. Needless to say, Plato did not look too favorably upon art. But it stands to reason, if the artist is really just imitating an imitation, who's to say that she might not come up with something that looks more like this world of forms than reality itself? The drive to imitate nature was one of the hallmarks of the most widespread modern artistic revolution, the Renaissance. Literally, the rebirth of European art, the Renaissance represents a massive reconciliation between art, which had long been dominated by religious influence, with science, which had fallen out of favor with religion in many respects. It was under this unification that brilliant sculptors like Donatello studied the human anatomy and paradoxically captured the tension and dynamic motion of the body in a stagnant statue. During this era, Leonardo da Vinci merged mankind into mathematics with his famous sketch of the Vitruvian Man, a perfectly proportioned male inscribed within a circle and spanning a square. The study of physical and visual sciences made possible his brilliant engineering feats in city planning, military weaponry, and construction technology. Raphael and Michelangelo immortalized philosophy and paganism in their paintings, marking a huge intellectual shift from the dominant Catholicism to the ancient Greek influences resurfacing at the time. For example, the School of Athens visually portrays the fundamental conflict between empiricism and rationalism through the positioning of various Greek philosophers, while the paintings of the Roman goddess Venus bear resemblance to the Madonna. These artists were unique among their peers, not just because they later became Ninja Turtles, but also because they aided the cultural transition toward honoring scientific thinking. One of the best examples of this mating of art with science is Brunelleschi, who invented the artistic method of perspective, basing his work off the scientific revolution in optics led by Sir Isaac Newton. He also researched ancient Greek and Roman methods of construction revised under the new geometry to build the largest and grandest dome of his era at the Florence Cathedral, and all that with no interior scaffolding. The absolute brilliance on display to create art is a key factor toward its appreciation by the masses, referred to as skilled human actions by Professor Dutton. In this line of reasoning, the art we appreciate most thoroughly is that which is created by intentional and generally complex human effort, virtuoso performances by the top performers in the genre at hand. This is why we might use the word beautiful to describe an incredibly detailed painting as well as an excellent point of tennis, or a moving orchestral composition as well as a delicious, freshly baked pastry. The wide variety of art can be attributed to the wide variety of skills at which humans can excel, and it is this excellence which defines art. 
A major proponent of this anthropocentric theory was one of my favorite philosophers, Friedrich Nietzsche. His famous concept of the Ubermensch holds man to be the ultimate end of the universe. To Nietzsche, the universe is essentially meaningless. When there is meaning to be found, there must be conscious thought, which is brought to bear by man. He writes, quote, Nothing is beautiful except for man alone. All aesthetics rests upon this naivety. Nothing is ugly except the degenerating man, end quote. He names a specific physiological condition for that state of human effort, frenzy. Quote, frenzy must first have enhanced the excitability of the whole machine, else there is no art, end quote. Frenzy isn't just chaos for Nietzsche. It's the fullness felt while consumed by an action, by embracing the entirety of a distinctly human experience. In this state of ultimate creativity, he says, man will, quote, transform things until they mirror his power, until they are reflections of his perfection. This having to transform into perfection is art, end quote. Man can recognize his own perfection and will to power in the creation and appreciation of art beyond nature, perhaps even in spite of its cold, arbitrary vacuum. Even an artist photographer whose pictures depict nature can claim to have made art, since her particular choice of camera, frame for the shot, and above all her will to capture this particular instant rise above the call of animal nature and endow her art with self-derived meaning. But here, we come to one of the critical questions of aesthetic philosophy. Is beauty in the eye of the beholder, or are there broad principles of beauty that apply to any judgment of aesthetics? The universality of human standards of beauty could perhaps be genetic or culturally derived and may not reflect truly universal principles. But at the same time, it's hard to deny the beauty in perfect symmetry, such as in the teardrop hand axe. Thinkers like Nietzsche believe that mankind lies at the center of aesthetic judgment. In other words, there is no such concept as beauty without the distinctly human ability to discern it. Thinkers like Plato would argue that the similarities and trends of things we perceive as beautiful indicate some objective truth, perhaps scientific or spiritual, that pervades our conscious value hierarchy, like the world of forms. So who's right? One form of this debate takes place over a specific type of aesthetic experience, known to philosophers as the sublime. This sort of experience goes well beyond beauty. In fact, things that are sublime aren't necessarily beautiful. The way we define it could impact which philosophy of art we align with, but I'll shoot for neutrality here. A sublime experience is one that juxtaposes the infinite with the infinitesimal. As an example, consider looking out into the vastness of the ocean or the depths of the Milky Way. As a less beautiful example, imagine watching a lion chase down and capture a gazelle, tearing into the carcass and feasting upon the victim. All these examples contain some sense of the infinite, the vastness of the ocean, the endless abyss of space, and the continuous cycle of life, respectively. And they also force that infinite realization upon one very finite observer, you. You certainly feel tiny in comparison, and you certainly can't be aware of all the details of the experience at once. Your senses are humbled by their limitations. So is this objective beauty? Georg Hegel would answer yes. For him, this infinite is quote, grounded in the one absolute substance, end quote. This is what Hegel calls spirit, and it exists in many forms throughout his philosophy. For example, he views the track of history as one endless loop of self-actualization of the spirit, starting with the status quo, or thesis, challenged by some movement of opposition, or antithesis, and reconciled into a new status quo, synthesis, which then becomes the new thesis, and so on. Hegel's view has religious undertones, citing the experience of the sublime as, quote, 
complete and clear distinction between the human and the divine, end quote. Since this aesthetic experience originates from an external source, God, it is by definition not dependent on man. But Immanuel Kant would argue that this experience actually empowers the human. He breaks up the sublime into two categories, mathematically sublime and dynamically sublime. The former is the triumph of reason over imagination. While we can't comprehend every single detail of this infinite experience, we can conceive of it as a whole. It is possible to understand the entire ocean as one body through reason, even though we can't imagine sensing the whole ecosystem in the ocean. That our ability to reason can help us grapple with concepts too large to exist within our sensory experience is the ultimate empowerment of man, so he should not feel humbled by the expanse of the infinite. The dynamically sublime is found in becoming, quote, conscious of being superior to nature within us and thus also to nature outside us, end quote. The duality of the experience forces us to, quote, recognize our physical powerlessness, but at the same time reveals a capacity for judging ourselves as independent of nature, end quote. It's not just that we are independent from nature. We can judge ourselves to be beholden only unto ourselves, which is why we can stand near an active volcano in Iceland and realize, A, this could totally kill us, but also, B, our instinctive fear of death and danger can be overcome by rational awe. But both of these concepts of sublime seem to deal with nature. How does this relate back to art? Well, if Hegel is right and our judgment of beauty has ontological roots external to us, then appreciation of art is simply a comparison against some universal principles. But if Kant is right, then appreciation of art requires free play or harmony between imagination, which is built from intuition, and rational understanding, which can extend beyond it. The former aspect is built from external experience, but the latter is innate to the individual and how she perceives her place in the universe. Thus, it would require both universal truth as well as personal pleasure, even though the universality exists, quote, a priori, without having to wait for the assent of others, end quote. Instead of perceiving and categorizing the object through rational means, appreciation of art requires man to release his imagination unbounded while also understanding what's presented in front of him, resulting in a feeling of disinterested pleasure. Interestingly, critics of Kant claim that in order for beauty to be universal under his theory, everything would have to be beautiful. And to be honest, I'm okay with that reality. As we've seen, it's difficult to parse through beauty from a purely philosophical standpoint. So let's take a look at how artists and art critics have addressed this challenge through their works. Many artists challenge the concept of beauty by incorporating new styles. Basquiat's neo-expressionist graffiti-inspired art, for example, appears unfocused and hectic on the surface, but contains direction and meaning, often uniting two warring motifs into one cohesive piece. One of my favorite artists, Doron Gossett, uses the unique medium of balloons as his artistic canvas. His Red Line project was a series of images of a long red balloon photographed in areas devastated by the climate crisis to draw awareness. But his most influential work was commissioned as the centerpiece during the Olympic Games held in Atlanta, the Fly Guy, which is that weird floppy balloon you see at used car sales lots. Both these artists took bold new steps to help redefine beauty in the art world, and it is this art world that Arthur Danto, philosopher and art critic for The Nation magazine, believed was the key to defining art. To Danto, art must fit into the, quote, atmosphere of art theory, end quote, placing significant emphasis on the historical context of art. 
Art cannot address subjects that are irrelevant or devoid of impact in its contemporary society. It also can't spell it out for the viewer. In order for something to be placed in the art world, its interpretation needs to be guided by knowledge of the context of art and society. Doron Gazet's Red Line project would have been meaningless back in the Middle Ages when climate change was not a relevant prospect impacting society. Similarly, Basquiat's expressionism requires the historical development of graffiti art, the resurgence of Latin American and African traditional art, and the thematic conflicts in society in order to be properly integrated into the art world. The beauty of art, then, comes not only from an innate feeling of pleasure, but also the pleasure of recognizing the significance of the artwork in the arc of art history. There isn't necessarily an objective set of rules a priori, because the rules are set by the historical development of art, which requires the implied mutual assent of art critics, artists, and art viewers. This view isn't necessarily human-centric either, since part of the history of art can be traced back to mimicry of nature, which started from recognizing icons and indexes found in nature, not just the symbols that early hominids created. This theory might sound pretty satisfying, but it's been criticized for requiring an independent assessment of what counts as art historical, without actually providing one. Danto proposes his view of art in his 1981 book, The Transfiguration of the Commonplace, which I'm sure made Professor McGonagall very happy. But one artist in particular challenged his concepts by defying even the title of the book itself. In the early 20th century, the Dada artist Marcel Duchamp came out with a new line of art called the Readymades. His most famous, or perhaps infamous, work was titled Fountain. It was a urinal. I'm not joking. He signed a urinal with a false name, laid it flat on its back, and submitted it to a non-juried art exhibition. Even though they were supposed to accept every work of art they received, the Society of Independent Artists rejected his entry on the grounds that it wasn't made by him. Duchamp subsequently published a defense of the pseudonym artist in which he claims, quote, Whether the artist with his own hands made the fountain or not has no importance. He chose it. He took an ordinary article of life, placed it so that its useful significance disappeared under the new title and point of view, and created a new thought for that object, end quote. He claims that the most fundamental aspect of art is not in the sensual appeal or skill demonstrated by the artist, but in the idea itself. To imagine the urinal as a fountain on its side is to see it from a new perspective, quite literally. Those of us familiar with urinals know exactly how one might envision this, but to directly bring it into the frame of artistic thought is certainly a controversial and original creation. This piece highlights many of the art theories we've discussed. It certainly can be placed within the historical context of countercultural art, since artists in the early 20th century were being pushed to focus on aesthetic appeal. Duchamp's ready-made collection was purposely comprised of objects without aesthetic value, such as wheels, stools, and urinals, and it brought the aspect of creativity and ideation into the main focus. Today, we know these processes to be central to the Guild of Artists, which is exactly the historical shift that Duchamp intended. To be able to compare the vast historical effect that such a small, mundane piece of art can affect is akin to recognizing our individual capability to adapt. Kant would certainly view the ready-made genre with disinterested pleasure, and might even call it a sublime experience to consider what gravity such a small change in perspective can have. And while Plato and Hegel might not recognize the visual experience of the ready-made art as universally pleasing, it certainly is universally pleasing to witness the birth of a revolutionary idea. Perhaps the object itself does not keep with traditional perceptions of aesthetics, but it's exactly this feeling of displeasure that helps us recognize the distinction between human creativity 
and what one might call the divine or the world of forms. In fact, both those concepts are perfect in idea alone since we can't see or sense their true forms. In the same way, Duchamp's concepts and ideas are the central facet of his art, not the pale reflection of it that appears in our sensory experience. It might seem like we've spent this episode wandering around looking for a solution to a problem that we have yet to really define. So I want to end today by reflecting back to those two different etymologies of art, the first as a kind of craft and the second as a specialized form of knowledge. How we understand art, whether as a demonstration of skilled human effort, as Dutton calls it, or as a reflection of underlying aesthetic truths, or some free combination of the two, defines how we experience beauty. We can choose to allow ourselves to think of the sublime as an exaltation of our own independence and virtue, or bask in the limitless glory of some force that gives rise to natural order out of chaos. At the end of the day, like I said at the beginning, art is up to you to figure out. But understanding why we think things are beautiful, why we make value judgments of aesthetics in the first place, is crucial in assessing our limitations as living beings. Art is evolutionarily tied to the development of both tools and language, which form what I think of as the trifecta of human distinction. The concepts of choice, history, cognition, and identity are all strands which interweave to form this tapestry of human expression. Whether or not you think deeply about art, aesthetic judgments are an inherent faculty of the human senses, and their limitations are our limitations. Perhaps learning to appreciate the world with indifference, to recognize that our scope of judgment may never be complete, is the key to cultivating our own sense of happiness, derived not from the world without, but the world within. And this might help us figure out how to grow together and navigate the balance between individuality and unity. As Eric Fromm said, quote, the transformation of an atomistic into a communitarian society depends on creating again the opportunity for people to sing together, walk together, dance together, admire together. End quote. Thanks for listening today, guys, and I'll be back soon to mess with the madness.